Hi, I'm Peter Beinart. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very lucky to be talking today uh, with Tanya Harry, who is the executive director of Gisha, uh, a really important Israeli nonprofit organization that works to protect the freedom of movement of Palestinians, especially in Gaza. And there is a fair amount of conversation in the American media, in the Jewish community in the United States about Gaza, and yet I feel like very often it's not informed by a real understanding of the actual lives of people in Gaza and the way in which Israel's blockade of Gaza actually works. So I'm really grateful to have you, Tanya, here to talk about that for a little while. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with a broad question, but I think one which is really central to the conversation about Gaza politically in the United States and inside the American Jewish community, which is the if you bring up Gaza <clears throat> virtually very, very frequently, people will respond by saying, look – Israel has no choice but to maintain a blockade on Gaza because, after all, Hamas launches rockets against Israel. And so Israel has to have a blockade to make sure that Hamas doesn't able, is not able to rebuild that weaponry that could kill Israelis. So I just wanted to ask you how you think about that general argument. So, I mean, I think to, to look at that argument, you need to take a step back and realize that Israel has been um, controlling um, most of the borders of Gaza for, for many years, for several decades, of course, since 1967 and the, and the occupation there. Um, of course, there's, there's Egypt on the southern border, which we can talk about. But if we're talking about um, Erez crossing and Kerem Shalom crossing, the main pedestrian crossing in Israel's control, and the only commercial crossing which is in Israel's control. Um, those crossings were were already in Israel's hands, and they you were mean, more already in Israel's hands closed. before Hamas took over. Is what you're saying? Before Hamas took over, um, and even after the disengagement, when when Israel pulled its military installations and settlements from the territory. So um, what happened when Hamas came, came to power in 2007, when it took control you know, by force inside the territory, Israel didn't have to change that control. I mean, all it had to do was change the nature of its control. And um, when Hamas came to power in 2007, Israel closed those borders to most access. It said, we're going to enforce what it called at the time economic warfare. Um, a kind of sanctions policy. The idea was to put pressure on the civilian population, on Hamas. Um, invariably, there were both arguments that were made. And and the, the, the policy really attacked the economy. Um, the idea was it could have humanitarian aid, but it couldn't have an economy. So inputs for the economy were blocked. Everyday items that Israel considered luxuries were blocked from entering the Strip. And exit of all goods was blocked as well. So you can imagine local production in the Gaza Strip, um, you know, was devastated. The local economy was devastated. And, of course, movement of people was also heavily restricted. Um, so I think that, you know, we, we do have to go back to that policy. Some things have changed since then, which we can talk about. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the idea at the time was not just one based on security, which is legitimate, the idea that you might need to block um, arms, or you might need to block people who could endanger um, Israel's security. The idea was to enforce a policy that, that by its very nature, attacked 
the economy, that, that put a block on, on people, Israel would agree, pose no threat, on goods that pose no threat, because the, the very point was to put pressure on the population. And even though there have been some changes, that's still more or less the concept today. It's not just about security, unfortunately. It's about much more than that. So your argument is that although Israel already controlled access into Gaza, that the restrictions on movements of people and goods in and out was um, was tightened after Hamas's uh, after Hamas took control following the Palestinian elections in two thousand six. Is that right? Exactly. It was tightened, and the goal was to put pressure on the civilian population. And and the Israeli government said that explicitly. Who? who how, how do you know? How do we it know did. that? It did say that explicitly. I mean, even if you look at the security cabinet decision from September of two thousand and seven. Um, it cites um, that, uh, you know, goods and, and movement of people needed to be blocked simply because Hamas was in power in the Strip. Um, in responses to court petitions that we brought at the time, it called uh, um, uh, its restrictions economic warfare. That was specifically a decision that it made at the time to limit entrance of fuel and also the flow of electricity into the Strip. It wasn't because that electricity was contributing directly to the production of rockets, for example. It was an act of, of, of sanction, of, of putting pressure on the population. The ra- the- um, and over time, over time, we have seen various kinds of statements, and I think it is also indicative of the problem um, that there hasn't been enough transparency about what the actual goals are of this policy, when it would end, um, what, what it's all about, how Israel is monitoring the situation, etc. So you mentioned that there are aspects of the blockade that don't, in your view, have any security rationale, and that perhaps even the Israeli government has acknowledged don't have any security rationale. I wonder if you can go into a little more detail about what some of those are. Sure. So um, we're working every day um, at Gisha with the criteria on movement of people. Um, It's an actual document that has um, now been published uh, thanks to our work. And it lists the criteria under which a person can apply for a permit to exit the Strip. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be granted a permit if they meet that criteria. It's just an indication of eligibility. And in that um, criteria, you can... You can read it for yourself. It's in black and white. Uh, we have a translation into English on our website. Um, and you can see exactly the kinds of circumstances under which a person can ask for a permit. And um, just to give an example, um, if you have a, a family member that's living, let's say, in the West Bank, you're in Gaza City, you have your mother, let's say, in Ramallah, you can only visit your mother in one of three circumstances. Um, if she's getting married, um, if she has an illness, which you can prove um, that that you know she uh, will die from, how do you prove? How do you prove if that? She, um, um, you have to provide uh, you know medical uh, documentation um, that that will be reviewed by the the military, the Israeli military, and they'll decide whether your mom is sufficiently uh, ill or dying, um, or if she's already passed away, um, and of course. You know, to get a permit, everyone needs to pass a security clearance. So that's that's the first condition. And then the second condition is to meet one of one of these criteria. And there are others, of course, but just to give this example. And and so I think that it's it's 
um, a good way of seeing that, you know, let's say you just haven't seen your mother in uh, 15 years. Let's say she broke her leg and, you know, you want to go visit her for a few days and help her out around the house. That's not a sufficient reason to get a permit which to me indicates this isn't about security because if you are the same you and your mother is your same mother and she's dying, you might have a chance of getting that permit. So they're not looking at individuals. They're looking at broad circumstances and, and trying to, to limit movement. Um, when it comes to movement of goods, there are plenty of examples as well about um, decisions that have been made not just based on security, um, I, I give often the example of goods that are allowed out to the Israeli market. Um, right now, in terms of agricultural produce, um, there's just three things that are allowed out. Um, tomatoes, eggplants, and uh, lulavim, uh, which are these palm fronds that are used um, during the Sukkot uh, holiday. Um, and, you know, that is totally based on need in the Israeli market. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that strawberries are inherently more dangerous than tomatoes. It's just that that's what's needed in the Israeli so market. So strawberries you cannot um, export from Gaza into Israel. You cannot. You cannot. Um, you cannot sell strawberries from Gaza uh, to Israel. Only to to the West Bank, and even that sometimes some years has been blocked. Um, so there are endless <laughs> numbers of examples and decisions that are made um, on a on a day to day basis like this that really show that security is by far not the only, um, uh, you know, measure or condition uh, uh, by which by which movement is, is allowed or not allowed. You mentioned the difficulty of people from Gaza going to travel to the West Bank. Um, one of the things that has intrigued me in, in, in reading about this and, and reading Gisha's work over the time is the, is the difference in the way Israel treats people who want to go from Gaza to the West Bank and the way people treat uh, Israel treats people who want to go from the West Bank to Gaza. Is that different? And mm-hmm. if so, why? Yeah. So, um, in general, when when you're talking about the criteria on travel um, of people for visiting people, the criteria is mostly mm-hmm. the same. So, if you're going from Gaza into Israel, from Israel into Gaza, from the West Bank into Gaza, etc., you mainly need to have a first-degree relative who is, like I said, dead, dying, or getting married, um, or meet an, um, you know, a, another set of, of kind of narrow criteria if you're seeking medical treatment from Gaza that's not available in the Strip and you want to go to the West Bank or Israel, for example. The difference, though, comes when you want to move permanently. Um, so when you want to relocate or, or, or resettle. Um, and in that case, the criteria show a very strong preference for kind of one direction, and that is from the West Bank to Gaza. If you are a resident of Gaza and you want to move to the West Bank, let's say to reunite with family, even to go study or, to, or for a better job, it's uh, completely impossible. Um, any kind of travel that would be of an extended nature up to resettlement is completely impossible. But when it comes to travel in the other direction, um, Israel is quite happy to allow Palestinians from the West Bank to move to Gaza on one condition, that they sign away their residency rights in the West Bank. So we've seen this over the past years on a number of occasions where families had no choice or, you know, felt that, that they, they had to live together, they couldn't go abroad. And we've seen people who have forfeited their residency rights um, in the West Bank, 
and then for one reason or another have decided they, they would like to go back. And we've been waging um, legal battles over this um, in, the, in the courts. Um, and luckily, we had one success uh, recently. A, a woman who had moved to, to Gaza, gotten married, she had two young daughters um, in, in Gaza with her husband. And the situation economically was so, so difficult in the Strip that she decided she would like to go back to her family in the West Bank, to her mother and father. And, you know, it was a devastating choice for her because it meant that she would be separated from her husband. Her children would be separated from their father, likely indefinitely, because there's absolutely no way for that husband and father to request relocation and family unification with his wife and children um, in the West Bank. And that was a decision that that she made. And I think it shows um, the hardship that people are facing in Gaza and the kind of impossible decisions that they are forced to make, and again, without any connection to security. There was no security argument made, not about the husband, not about the wife, not about her children. It's purely a policy decision to only allow travel um, in one direction from the West Bank to Gaza. And what about if people from Gaza want to uh, leave, not to go to Israel or to the West Bank, but to go somewhere else in the world um, or sell products somewhere else in the world? W- what is that experience like of trying to leave Gaza and go somewhere else that's not the West Bank or Israel? Yeah. So it is important to note that, you know, um, Israel controls all access from Gaza to the West Bank. So even if a person were able to leave uh, the Strip through Egypt and do a kind of circuitous route through Egypt and into Jordan, they wouldn't be allowed into the West Bank uh, without a permit. So Israel completely controls all access between uh, Gaza and the West Bank, and certainly between Gaza and Israel. When it comes to access abroad, um, right now there are a few options. One is the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian border. It is open more or less five days per week. Um, a person does need to meet criteria set by Egypt. They need to have a visa for a third country, students, uh, you know, for work purposes. Um, they need to, uh, you know, clear Egyptian security uh, screenings as well. And we have heard, of course, reports of, of people who are paying bribes, um, uh, you know, and paying kind of what are called these special coordination fees in order to bump themselves up in the line to get out of Egypt um, to, to make their travel um, more smooth. And that's why we've seen over the past uh, about a year and a half since Rafa has been open more or less regularly, um, thousands of people who have uh, exited the Strip uh, through through Rafa. So that's that's one option. If you're able to get a place in line um, and wait your turn, or if you have the means to pay and get out sooner, Rafa could be an option. Um, there is also an option via Israel. So Israel does allow some people to travel out of Erez Crossing. They get on a shuttle bus and go directly to the Allenby Bridge Crossing, which is in the West Bank, and travel out through Jordan. And there, too, um, they either need to meet criteria, so they need to show, for example, their students who are studying abroad, um, submit all of their paperwork um, for clearance for a permit, um, or a few other kind of criteria. And then there's also a new option that was added in the last few years, and that's if you sign away um, your, uh, um, you know, attempt, any kind of attempt to return within, at first it was a year, and now it's six months. 
um, then you can, you know, uh, uh, try to get a permit that way. So Israel basically is saying, you know, if you leave semi-permanently, you know, you could uh, dream of getting a permit. Um, we protested the, the one year, we called it a one-year ban, <laughs> um, because effectively, you know, you're, you're saying a person can leave, but they won't be able to go back home for a year, which is completely illegal. They've reduced it to six months, and that's still problematic. I mean, we have people who are, again, out of desperation, signing uh, these, these documents and saying they'll be away for six months. But then they could have a family member who is ill in the Strip. They could have, you know, uh, um, for, for example, if they don't have a visa or, you know, uh, an ability to stay in a third country and they need to come home, they've signed that, that, that document and Israel won't let them back in. So it's very, very problematic. Um, but certainly there are a few hundred people who are traveling per month out of, out of Eris Crossing going abroad. Um, when it comes to goods, in theory, uh, Israel says it allows all goods to exit uh, for abroad, to be exported abroad. Um, in practice, it's a very different story. We do see um, limitations on the kinds of goods that can be exported abroad. Um, and certainly, for the moment, um, uh, Gaza's most, most important markets are actually in Israel and the West Bank. They're the closest. It's where people have ties. Um, have relationships that they formed um, before 2007 when the borders were closed. And so the real markets that um, residents of Gaza would like to get access to in the short term are, are Israel and the West Bank. Um, and, and, you know, certainly building the, the ties for export abroad is, is important. But at the moment, it's just simply so expensive, it's prohibitive for many of the traders in the Strip. We do see some goods going abroad, some produce, um, some textiles, some furniture. But really the bulk of the products that are coming out of Gaza right now are going to the West Bank because um, that's where, you know, the markets are. And Israel won't allow access freely to the Israeli market. So you just have limited amounts of goods going to the Israeli market. Um, one thing I think is not widely known in the United States is about the way the popu population registry in Gaza works. Again, I think most – many Americans, certainly many American Jews, I think are surprised and um, um, dis disbelieving if, if one suggests that Israel occupies – still occupies Gaza. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. and so I, I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about the way the, 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 the Israel controls the population registry in Gaza. Yeah. So the Palestinian population registry, it's, um, you know, common both to the West Bank and Gaza, and Israel still controls who can be listed in that population registry. In other words, who would be considered a Palestinian resident of the West Bank or Gaza for the purposes of issuing them an ID card. And an ID card, of course, is critical to getting a permit to travel. Um, so, you know, in the, in the Oslo process, the control over the Palestinian population registry was, was gradually meant to be transferred over to the Palestinian Authority. Um, unfortunately, that process was halted. And you do have the PA, um, for example, submitting information um, to Israel, which Israel just updates, right? So let's say a person gets married, um, they get divorced, uh, a person passes away. Um, uh, you know, that, that information would be passed from the PA to Israel, and Israel would simply update its 
copy of the Palestinian Population Registry. And, and Israel's copy is the only one, you know, that is definitive, that is authoritative. When it comes to um, changes of address, that's not something that the PA can just update about. It actually needs Israel's approval. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's you know, it, Israel can continue to control where residents of Gaza live, right? Because, like I said, they will not allow people to relocate to the West Bank. And that even affects people who have, are already living in the West Bank. So let's say you're a resident of Gaza. Maybe you moved, um, you know, to the West Bank many years ago when, when movement was, was allowed more freely. Let's say you went to study, you got married, you went for a job. You have tens of thousands, um, potentially, of, of residents of Gaza. They're defined, quote-unquote, as residents of Gaza, but actually are living in the West Bank. And they can't update their addresses. They can't request a, an official address change you know, without Israel's approval. Um, so that's affecting people already in the West Bank, and certainly people in Gaza can't, uh, you know, just request to change their address without Israel's approval. Um, you, it also affects, you know, people who are um, in, inside of the Gaza Strip. You, you actually do have people who are, are essentially stateless um, because they entered the Strip at, at any, you know, a certain time, um, these could be Palestinians who were in other countries around the Middle East. Um, they could be people who married uh, residents of Gaza. And, you know, Israel would need to approve their addition to the Palestinian population registry for them to be considered residents of Gaza. And if you don't have status um, at all uh, uh, and, an, and an Israeli-issued ID card, you can't ask for a permit, certainly not to enter Israel. Um, but even when it comes to Egypt, um, you know, if you're completely stateless, it's impossible also to request access via RAFA. So you have people who are just totally trapped inside the Gaza Strip. Um, and, and the issue of the Palestinian Population Registry, I think, is one of the less visible or invisible ways that Israel is continuing to, to really have a profound impact on, on people's lives in the Strip. It's one of the things that um, many people don't know about. It's hard to kind of envision. It's hard to take photographs of, of course. But it's one of these um, kind of quiet ways that Israel still impacts the ability of people really to make decisions about their own families, um, about their own lives, about planning, about where they would like to live, with whom, et cetera. Um, you talked. We were just. You talked uh, a minute ago about Egypt and the the Rafah crossing, which is the crossing between Gaza and into Egypt. So one of the things one often hears um, in the American Jewish debate is, well, why are you displaying Israel? After all, Gaza is also part of enforcing that debate, uh, that that blockade. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, to go into a little more detail about Egypt's role in the blockade and also Egypt's motivation for the policy it pursues. Sure. Um, so, you know, Egypt is an, is an important actor um, in this whole picture, and certainly uh, control over Rafa is a significant, um, has a significant impact over people's lives in the Strip. Um, but Rafa crossing is, is limited. I mean, it is certainly the gateway to the outside world for residents of Gaza, and when it has been closed, I mean, the you know, the closure has been just enforced even more strictly. 
Um, so it's opening, uh, you know, more regularly back in May of 2018 was, was a welcome move. Um, and certainly many people who had been trapped in the strip, um, who, who weren't able to travel, students and others, um, have found an answer, you know, there at, at Rafa Crossing. And it's an important crossing. But, but it's only a crossing um, for, for people, not for goods. Is that right? It's only a crossing for people. Um, there is a small uh, crossing near Rafa. Um, it's called the Salahuddin Gate, um, and it is uh, being used right now for uh, some goods that are coming into the Strip it's in a very limited fashion. It's a market that's completely um, controlled by Hamas um, and, and by um, Egyptian actors on the Egyptian side. Um, and and I would I would say you know for more information about that um, uh, you know people would be welcome to to contact us. Um, there are goods that are coming through there that are um, you know blocked from entering via Israel um, or restricted I should say from entering via Israel things like cement. Um, there's also fuel coming in, uh, tires, um, all kinds of products as well as as kind of regular everyday products like like baby food and um, something I saw recently, indomie noodles, which I, I just learned what that is, so like instant mm-hmm. noodles um, and, and cigarettes, all, all kinds of products coming in through there, but it's only about a tenth of what comes in through Karim Shalom Crossing, which is the official uh, commercial crossing that's on the southern uh, border between Israel and Gaza. Um, so there are some goods coming in, but not in a way that can meet residents of Gaza's needs, um, certainly um, international actors who are bringing in uh, materials aren't using that crossing um, because they don't want to cooperate with, with the de facto Hamas government. So Karim Shalom Crossing is by far um, the, the only commercial crossing and a vital, vital lifeline for, for residents of Gaza for most of the products that are entering the Strip. Um, Egypt has obligations to residents of Gaza, certainly, um, and we would say that those obligations are um, mostly humanitarian obligations. It's an obligation to allow passage, given that Israel is blocking its side of, uh, of the border. Um, but we wouldn't say that it, Egypt owes the same kinds of obligations that Israel does, and, and that's because of Israel's long um, you know, direct rule inside of the Strip, um, from 1967 to 2005. Um, it's because also the, you know, indirect rule, uh, at, at which we would still call an occupation since 2005. And also, like I said, because it controls totally access to the West Bank. Um, so Israel is not just another actor in this picture. It's not just, you know, a country that happens to be on, uh, you know, one side of the strip. It is, um, it is, you know, for all intents and purposes, an occupying power. Now, it may not be an occupying power like it is in the West Bank. It certainly looks different, and we would, you know, analyze Israel's obligations based on, on the level of control it still has. Um, but critically, um, the control it still has is over access to the West Bank. It's over access to medical care, because most residents of Gaza who need care that's not available on the Strip has to go to East Jerusalem or the West Bank or Israel. It's control over access to families. They, they couldn't um, go to Egypt because it's, 30, just, it's a too, too difficult to trip in because Egypt doesn't have the same level of facilities? 
I mean, I don't think it's just about that. I mean, I think, you know, certainly the, the, the trek through the Sinai is a dangerous one. It's a long one. It's expensive. Um, but that, it's not about that. It's about what's on the other mm-hmm. side, right? What's on the other side of Rafa is the outside mm-hmm. world. What's on the other side of, of Erez Crossing and Karim Shalom Crossing is the Palestinian territory in the West mm-hmm. Bank. It is, you know, important markets in Israel, access to medical care that's still in Israel, access to families who are in Israel in the West Bank. Um, so it's not just about the kind of physical act of escaping or getting out. It's about where a person needs to go to. And residents of Gaza are still largely dependent on, on Israel. Um, and they have family. They have an economy in the West Bank. They have... Um, you know, cultural and social institutions in the West Bank. Um, so, you know, going out to Egypt is, is simply not the same as going out to the West Bank. So another question that gets raised, perhaps the, the most common question that, that's raised is uh, in these kind of conversations is, well, what about the role of Hamas? How much responsibility does Hamas bear for the suffering of people of Gaza and, and um uh, you know, would things be different were Hamas to take a more conciliatory view towards Israel, recognize its existence? How much does Hamas's own repression or corruption contribute to the suffering of people in Gaza as opposed to simply Israel's responsibility? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Hamas's role. Sure. I mean, look, I think that um, you can have a political analysis about whether, you know, the policy that Israel is enforcing is is smart, whether it's working, um, you know, whether Hamas has really been brought to its knees, whether the civilian population has, um, you know, changed the regime in Gaza as, as Israel perhaps wanted it to. I mean, I would answer those political questions and say that this closure has not been effective. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that it's important that we're also using an analysis um, you know, that, that is through a prism of, of our values and our morals. And I think that, you know, whether the, the de facto authority in place is Hamas, whether it's the PA, whether it's, I, I don't know who, Trump. I mean, the, the idea that you would use civilians um, to pressure the government, that you would, um, you know, not just, not just enforce sanctions. Again, Israel and Gaza have a special relationship. We're not talking about... Um, the U.S. and Mexico, which I know is often brought up as a as a kind of analogy, you know, the U.S. and Mexico are 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 independent countries. We're talking about a situation of dependence, of long um, control, et cetera. Um, so, so I think that it's very different. I think Hamas certainly um, bears, um, you know, blame uh, for a, a lot of the actions that it's taken towards its own population, um, for the actions that it's taken towards towards Israeli civilians and the harm that it causes deliberately um, to civilians, um, certainly um, violating international law, um, perpetuating war crimes even. Um, but I, I still think that it's important that we separate out Hamas's actions and, and what should be done and how those should be responded to and the civilian population. I mean, you do have almost 2 million people living in the Strip, um, about 70% of the population are under the age of 30. Um, a little over 50% are even under the age of 18. So, you know, you're talking about almost a million children um, who didn't vote for, for Hamas in 2006, 
They are not firing rockets. They're not engaged in acts of terror. And yet they're the vast, vast majority of the population. And, and they're bearing the brunt of these policies, which are, are ostensibly enforced, you know, against Hamas. Speaking of, of, of which, one, another common argument that one hears is that Israel would, would when there are military um, conflicts, that, that, that the primary blame for the death of Palestinian civilians falls on Hamas because Hamas is purposely um, putting itself in close proximity to Palestinian civilians in order to put those Palestinian civilians at risk so uh, that it will make Israel look bad. How, how do you think about that? I mean, look, I am the last person to defend Hamas or its actions or its tactics. Um, I, I certainly think that the Gaza Strip is a densely populated area. Um, certainly the, the, the cities, um, you know, you don't really have to hide. I mean, it's just that there are people everywhere um, and civilians everywhere. And certainly in the military operations, people really didn't have anywhere to go. Um, so you did have, you know, UN uh, schools that were trying to offer shelter um, to, to civilians, but they were overcrowded. And in some cases, they were even targeted. Um, so people didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe to leave their homes. They didn't know where to go. So I do think that um, this idea that, they, that you know, Hamas would have to go out of its way to hide among a civilian population is a little bit uh, excessive. That said, I, I, I don't defend their tactics, and I don't doubt that they um, do awful and nefarious things. Um, I will say, you know, I will point out that, um, you know, I live in Tel Aviv. Um, the Ministry of Defense is in the center of Tel Aviv. It is, um, you know, within, like, spitting distance of Tel Aviv's biggest hospital, Ichilov Hospital. Um, it's right by the mall, you know, where I go and buy, buy shoes sometimes. I mean, and, and I think that most Israelis, you know, want to believe um, that their military is, is acting in their best interest, that it's the most moral army in the world, that, you know, we don't do things, quote-unquote, that the other side does. Um, and, and I would say certainly that... Um, you know, I, I personally think that the, the Ministry of Defense being in the heart of Tel Aviv is something that people have overlooked um, and, and certainly makes me feel, um, you know, less than safe when, when, when we're in the, in the middle of a military operation. Another subject that's come up in the press uh, recently has been about the relationship between the Palestinian Authority, which runs, uh, which it runs things in, in the West Bank, or at least runs things in the West Bank under Israeli control, and mm-hmm. Hamas, and mm-hmm. how the PA's actions may have contributed to suffering of the population in Gaza. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, you know, in early 2017, basically there was a kind of calculation made by the PA that it could also um, uh, enforce kind of uh, sanctions policy or that it could, it could also pressure Hamas. I think it it viewed the situation and, and assessed that Hamas might be in a weak position. Um, and it took several measures uh, uh, to put pressure on, on Hamas. It cut the salaries of its own employees um, in the Strip. It, it put uh, several thousand uh, employees on early pension. It also um, tried to cut supply of uh, fuel, which was necessary for the power plant, and also direct supply of electricity. Now, some of those measures have been reversed. Um, the electricity supply is, is, is flowing again. Uh, you know, also the fuel, though some of it is paid by Qatar. 
Um, but the, the cuts to salaries are, are still in place. And certainly those actions and others have, have had a devastating uh, impact on residents of Gaza. And in general, I would say, um, you know, if you ask residents of Gaza what their main concerns are, the issue of the factional split is certainly very, very high among people's priorities, if not the first priority. Many people do believe, I think, that if there would be reconciliation, this could strengthen the Palestinian negotiating position vis-a-vis Israel, um, that it would increase the legitimacy of the, of the Palestinian Authority. Um, and, and it's certainly a very, very central issue. I think that the PA has struggled over the years with what kind of policy to enforce vis-a-vis Gaza and, and vis-a-vis Hamas and what to do. Um, I certainly disagree with the tactics that involve pr- putting pressure on the civilian population. And that, that tactic is the meant to, in, in, to try to, and to overthrow Hamas, to turn the population against Hamas? What's the rationale? I mean, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure that they've articulated mm. it as such. Um, but yeah, I certainly think that behind it is a kind of motivation to bring about um, you know, an end to to the to the factional split, maybe to strengthen their negotiating position vis-a-vis Hamas in in um, reconciliation talks. Um, but it it certainly had a devastating impact, and I think you know even more than anything, I, I, I feel like has made people in Gaza feel that they're being left behind. And something that that you know I often talk about that you know. After 2017 and in early 2018, there was a sense that people had in Gaza that, like, slowly everyone was turning their back. It had started um, with the PA and then, of course, the U.S. as well and moves that the U.S. had made, um, moving the embassy, cutting funding to UNRWA and talking about, the, you know, essentially that refugees, um, you know, have, have no rights uh, to return, et cetera, which, which really culminated in the protests. Um, uh, that started in, in early 2018. Um, so I think that the PA moves certainly were were the start of that. And then, and then the U.S. as well. People in Gaza got the message, nobody's looking out for us, nobody's going to fight for us. Um, you know, for a change in our in our status and in, in our day to day lives. So there's been some attention to this UN uh, Commission report, which talked about Gaza as becoming unlivable by 2020, by next year. And I wanted you to yeah. just talk a little bit yeah. about in what way um, Gaza may be on the brink of being of being unlivable. You know, something that many people don't realize is that um, the UN actually revised that report. In, it was written in 2012. Um, and after the military operation in 2014, it revised the report and actually said that it looked more like by 2018 the strip would become unlivable. And, um, you know, I, I assumed that the UN didn't mean, you know, necessarily that on, on January 1st, you know, 2020 or 2018, that, that it, you know, that people just would die in the streets. I mean, the idea, though, is that it's a place that is not habitable, that it's a place that can't support um, you know, well-being in, in you know in the in the way that that we've even known it until now, and and I think that you know you would have to define for yourself you know what you think is is unlivable. I mean, I certainly think that you know a place that that only has um, you know eight and, and on a good day maybe twelve hours of electricity per day. I, I think that sounds pretty unlivable already. I think a place where again you can't plan, you can't decide 
where you want to go, um, where you, where you want your kids to study. Um, you know, if you need to visit your parents who are living in another place, you know, that you can't go see them. Um, you, you know, where access to water is, is, um, so, so difficult. Um, you know, where unemployment is over 50% and nearly 70% among young people. I mean, I don't know what kind of red line we would wait for. Um, I think the Strip is already a place that's not livable. It's a place where people are surviving, um, but it's very, very far from being a place where people can hope to thrive. And and I think that that's something that um, anyone who, uh, you know, has a conscience, um, but also anyone who, who, you know, thinks that, um, you know, that, that this kind of stability is necessary in the Middle East, which I think is most people, I think should be working to change, uh, the situation in the Strip and, and not wait for a political resolution, not a reconciliation, not a, uh, resolution between Hamas and Israel. I think we really need to focus on civilians who are living, um, in the Strip. And, and meet our obligations to them. Just talk a little bit about why water access to water has become so difficult in Gaza. Yeah, so water, um, you know, in the Strip is, is provided from a few different sources. There's water that's purchased directly from Israel, a small amount, um, and then there's an aquifer underneath the Strip. Um, and unfortunately, most of the water in that aquifer estimates between, you know, 90 and 95% um, of that water is is not safe for drinking. It's polluted. It's salinated. Um, so most people rely on desalinated water. Um, and in order, of course, to desalinate water, you need electricity supply. You need electricity really for anything. <laughs> um, also for treating sewage, um, to pump sewage away from homes, to pump water to homes. So the issue of water and electricity is very, very interconnected. And if you don't have good and steady source of electricity supply. You certainly don't have a good water network or a sewage network. And that's, that's the case in Gaza um, today. You have, um, you know, service provision um, being interrupted, um, being very fraught, um, you know, spare parts that can't come in um, for the system, lack of funds to pay for repairs and upkeep and maintenance of the system. Um, and so you have basically families who are struggling on a day-to-day basis to make sure that they have enough water to, you know, get their, their daily needs, kind of their chores done and things. And also, of course, for drinking. Um, estimates are that, that families spend about 30% of their income on purchase of water because you just can't drink the water coming from the taps, um, which is a really, a really devastating figure in a place where, you know, unemployment is so high. You really have families just struggling on a day-to-day basis to meet their most basic needs. Um, the last question I want to ask you, Tanya, is, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about people who do the kind of work that you do, you know, uh, Israelis, people who live in Israel who do the kind of work that you do, and I, which I admire so much, is, is, is what it's like to do that work in Israel, for you to be spending your day, working day thinking about what's happening in Gaza when that's so far removed from the reality of most Israelis and, and frankly, that many Israelis are not really all that sympathetic to what's happening to people in Gaza. So I just wonder if you could talk about what that's like to be living in Tel Aviv, uh, working on, on Gaza and how it, how it comes up when you talk to people, you know, in Tel Aviv about, about the work you do. 
Um, you know, I, I, my, my personal kind of feeling about it is um, that I don't have a choice. Um, I think that, you know, I, I made a decision um, to move from the U.S. Uh, back to Israel. I was born there and that much of my family is there. But, you know, I wanted to go and do this work um, because I believe that as both an American and an Israeli, I have a, a double responsibility um, to try to improve the situation. And I don't think I could live in Israel without um, doing something that I felt was, was contributing um, to improving people's lives. Um, but I also think something that, you know, maybe people don't, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily think of is, is I, I feel actually really lucky to do this work because I really get to see uh, another side of the strip that, that most Israelis don't get to see. I think, um, you know, in Israel, certainly, but also in the U.S., people are so bombarded with some of these myths that we've talked about today. They're bombarded with images of, of you know, um, Hamas men in balaclavas, um, you know, of, of people firing rockets. They really assume that the only thing that is coming from the Strip are rockets, that the only, um, you know, life in, in Gaza is, is, is you know, con- kind of constant military operations or something like that. And... And I really get to see a side of Gaza that is, you know, brimming with potential. Um, young people who are trying to get to their studies, who want to go to job interviews, who want to get out for trainings, um, you know, families who would like to reunite, who um, if we're able to get them permits. They send us, uh, you know, pictures and thank you letters. I mean, it's really um, fulfilling on a day-to-day basis. And, and I think it also, you know, makes me feel less afraid. Most people are, um, you know, meant to, to be afraid. They're taught to be afraid. And, and I think that once you see uh, another side of the strip, you realize there are people um, who, who want to live their lives um, just like you and I do. And, and when I talk to people about the strip, that's, that's the message that I, I try to send them. So you do get a lot of hostility, obviously. I mean, when you, um, you know, in, in taxis or in stores or in restaurants or things, you know, if I'm talking to people on the street, I, I pretty much avoid telling them what I do because I, I don't, I don't want to hear the hostility. But in people, with people who I have, even if I can have five minutes with them um, and I give them examples of cases that we've taken to court, if I give them examples of, you know, the kind of people who are affected by these policies, almost always they will agree with me that what's happening um, in Gaza and the policy that Israel has been enforcing is totally foolish. And, and I really think that um, if people took more time to think critically about what's being done, it's really a no-brainer. You really cannot look at the details of this policy and what's being done and not think this is bad for Israel it's bad for, for Palestinians, and, and it's bad for regional stability, let alone it's just, uh, you know, not, not a moral thing to be doing. Um, on that note, uh, Tanya, thank you so much for spending the time, uh, and thank you so much for the work you're doing, and, um, and let's hope um, that, that one day people in Gaza will be li- able to live in a more humane and decent and free way. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.